A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think the rebellion could be enormous if the government doesn't end lockdown in December. Four. The five days of Christmas. My true love sent to me a pair of plastic gloves so I didn't get contaminated by the Quality Street tin. Three. I never believed that Dominic Cummings was the guarantor of a decent Brexit. Two. It is not true to say that scientists who don't back lockdown are outliers. It just is not. It's wrong. One. We have liftoff. And welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Last Friday the 13th, the Prime Minister lost his chief strategist, Dominic Cummings, after infighting at the court of King Boris. Now Johnson's self-isolating for two weeks, despite testing negative for Covid, using a quick turnaround lateral flow test. From his Downing Street bunker, doing PMQs via Zoom, the Prime Minister's wound up the Scottish Nationalists, not difficult given their total outrage default setting, by claiming, and I quote, devolution's been a disaster. And if we don't land that EU free trade agreement, we'll remain back in Scotland, deliver its only vote, breaking up the United Kingdom, ending over 300 years of history. Alison, it's been a week of vaccines, vacillation and venal politics. We're clinging on, as you say in your latest Telegraph column, to what we can recall of reality, trapped in a maze of madness. <laughs> Before we get the rocket off the launch pad, Halligan... Can we just establish that if I ever find out that you're referring to me as Princess Nut Nut <laughs> when you're exchanging messages about me with lovely Reese, our producer, however justified the nickname Princess Nut Nut might be for your co-pilot, we will be disconnecting your oxygen tank. Is that quite clear? Alison, I wish you well. <laughs> So that's pretty much what happened in number 10 was, I think, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, his, um was the Prime Minister's Director of Communication. And I think they were alleged to have been conspiring possibly against Princess Nutnut, better known as the Prime Minister's fiance Carrie Simmons. It all seems to have come to a head. I don't know what you think, Liam. I suspect it may be not unconnected to the leak of that 4,000 deaths a day, which precipitated the Prime Minister plunging us into lockdown too. So we've got that madness going on. I know you know Dominic Cummings, and we should talk a bit about that later. And for many of us, of course, he's a kind of hero because he did manage to get Brexit over the line in the face of astonishing opposition from Parliament and the judiciary and pretty much everyone else. But I did once meet Cummings and Kane at a meeting, and I must say they... Um, Was Lee in the chicken suit? <laughs> he wasn't, sadly. <laughs> 
But they, he used to work for the Daily Mirror and dress up in a chicken suit to he, chase he Tories. He did. Well, there, there they were. And I must say, they made the Mitchell brothers from EastEnders look like Aubrey Beardsley and Oscar Wilde. I mean, they are, you know, a, a charmless, glum on the spectrum pair. But, but nevertheless, obviously, they're... Their departure does mark this new transition in Downing Street. And in addition to that, as you said, we have the Prime Minister who only a few months ago promised us, Liam, that antibody tests were the key to restoring our liberty. And what's happened? The government running around doing hundreds of thousands of these tests every day. And all it seems to mean is identifying huge numbers of asymptomatic cases, including the Prime Minister. So we have the world-beating test and trace system, which should be reducing quarantines, as it is in sensible countries. But we're having thousands and thousands of people, including teachers and school children and NHS staff, having to self-isolate again and again. And the truly, I think the truly appalling thing this week, really, is Boris self-isolating because he said test and trace pinged him. Well, as if that's going to happen. And he said, it doesn't matter that I've had the disease and I'm bursting with antibodies from the last time I had it. Well, obviously it does matter, Liam, because if you have COVID antibodies and you still don't have immunity, then that means none of the vaccines we're purchasing for hundreds of millions of pounds are of any use against the disease. What do you think? It does seem very, very odd, doesn't it? Given that there's only been a handful of possible reinfection cases of COVID. Look, I've I've known Dominic Cummings uh, a long time. He's a very smart guy, but he does have a talent, and he's a, say this himself for picking a fight in an empty room. <laughs> I do think Boris has lost something with Dominic going out the door, but it has given him an opportunity for some kind of reset. And when we go to our guest pod section, there'll be more about Dominic Cummings. But in trying to get this reset off the ground, if you like, Boris Johnson is now in self-isolation, which of course makes it much more difficult. And there's just been some astonishingly explosive politics so far this week with lots of people on the Tory backbenches worrying with Cummings going out the door, even though lots of them don't you know, have much love for him, that the Tories' kind of harder-edged, more regionally-focused so-called levelling-up agenda would then give way to lots of more sort of Cameroon-era, Notting Hill-inspired stuff about putting windmills on your house mm -hmm. and green politics. And indeed, today, when we're recording, the Prime Minister has come out with his 10-point green agenda. Now, you can put forward a case, and I have in columns over the years, that pursuing a kind of green agenda that appeals to the sort of people who shop at Waitrose, if you like, can also create a lot of jobs for the more industrial heartlands of the UK who are very unlikely to vote green, frankly. For instance, if you look at the huge Dogger Bank wind farm project, it's the biggest offshore wind farm in the world that we're building with the Norwegians. And there are parts of the Northeast that have been revitalised by that project. Old shipyards that were working on oil rigs over the years, supporting them, now converting to offshore wind. So it can be a good thing. But I think if Cummings is going out the door, Johnson has to demonstrate that he's not going to lose sight of the promises he made to those red wall seats in the Midlands and the North that turned Tory for the first time. He made them promises during the election campaign. He has to stick to those 
promises, which are very much sort of blue collar driven, if you like, rather than what some people would call environmental virtue signaling. Because if he doesn't keep those promises, he's going to lose those seats. And those seats are his 80 seat majority and then he'll lose the next election. So even though there are lots of Tories that are happy to see Dominic Cummings going out the door, not least because he made an art form out of insulting (laughs) MPs and showing them disdain and not hiding the fact that he didn't think they were as clever as him in, in almost all cases, they are concerned that the agenda now will shift and become too flabby without Cummings in the room. Well, I'm all for having more women, older women, you know, people with a bit of common sense joining the top team. But I just can't see, Liam, the punters in Hartlepool and Mansfield who who gave up voting Labour and backed Boris in December. The talk in the in the streets of those places is 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 not of, you know, sort of cleaning the oceans, is it? It's at the moment we're sort of we're trying to put a roof over your head and wondering if you can bail out your mate whose hairdressing salon has gone down the pan. So, And can your kid buy a house and are you going to be unemployed in this time next month? Yes, exa- exactly. And I, and I feel, what do you mean a reset now? What's Why are we supposed to be interested in you know the number 10 operation? The number 10 operation should be interested in getting the country out of the mire as soon as possible. So I feel all this projecting forward into the green agenda seems to me to be totally the wrong moment to be doing it. It almost feels like a sort of distraction, maybe deliberately so. And I I said in my column this week, what is Boris doing self-isolating? I mean, it's clearly a nonsense. Do you know, Liam, that the test and trace rules say that you can't leave quarantine even if you test negative for COVID. So we have our leader at this crucial time who cannot get the virus again. He cannot transmit the virus to anyone else. Nevertheless, he feels he should abide by the rules. Now, we've said before, what would Margaret Thatcher do? Do you think Margaret Thatcher, a scientist, would sit for two weeks away from her job? I know he's supposed to be working on a basis of science, which is absolute lunacy. And I this is what I really feel it's driving me mad. And something something we saw this week, Liam, which is, I think, genuinely interesting, We've had that august and uh, unexcitable journal. Did you see the British Medical Journal? Unbelievable. Has had absolutely had enough of this unscientific claptrap. And I know you, you directed my attention to it. It had a very strong leader column about the corruption of science by politicians. And this week, this is what they said about the test and trace. Spending the equivalent of 77% of the NHS annual revenue budget on an unevaluated, underdesigned national programme leading to an insufficiently supported intervention in many cases for the wrong people, i.e. the prime minister cannot be defended now that is strong stuff isn't it it's unbelievable and that bmj editorial was published on the same day that cummings left office and perhaps that's why it wasn't front page news and it should be front page news the guy who wrote that editorial cameron abassi he is a trained physician he's got years of experience as a hospital doctor he's consulted Mm. for the nhs world health organization harvard he's the executive editor of the bmj Mm. one of the oldest and most prestigious specialist medical publications in the world their editorial was titled no holding back when good science is suppressed by by the medical political complex, people 
die. Science is being suppressed for financial and political gain, says the BMJ. COVID-19 has unleashed state corruption on a grand scale and is harmful to public health. Politicians often claim to follow the science, the editorial went on, but science is rarely absolute. Better for politicians to be informed and guided by science, but even that approach only retains public and professional trust if science is available for scrutiny and free of political interference, and if the system is transparent and not compromised by conflicts of interest. Mm. This is not newspaper scribblers like you and I, albeit conscientious ones who have learned a great Mm. deal about epidemiology over the last few months. This is a trained physician expert in his field who is writing on behalf of the House Journal of the British Medical Establishment. Absolutely astonishing. It really is astonishing. And as you say, it should really be on every front page. And we are seeing this divide now, aren't we, between what the government and its bunker is sending out these you know, increasingly farcical announcements. So the one we had today, Liam, was the five days of Christmas. <laughs> My true love sent to me a pair of plastic gloves so I didn't get contaminated by, you know, the quality street tin. I mean, you know... You old romantic, you. I know. (laughs) So according to The Sun, Harry Cole, very good getter of scoops, that the government in its majesty is going to allow households to mix indoors for a limited period, possibly starting on Christmas Eve, because they feared a mutiny of mums. Too bloody true they feared a mutiny of mums. I mean, no one, literally no one is going to pay any attention to this kind of stuff. So so you get this kind of surreal dissonance, really, between the, you know, what number 10 says they're going to allow people to do and the obvious wisdom of crowds, if you like, of the British people, who I think now have basically had enough and are just making their own arrangements. And can we just say, just just at this moment, we're coming to our Velma moment in a minute. Are you ready? (laughs) I just want to say to Planet Normal listeners, at this moment, 67,985,085 British people are not seriously ill with COVID-19. And that is 99.98% of our population. And they seriously think they're going to tell us what we can do for our Christmas dinner. They are mental. Now, we are very lucky, Liam, aren't we? We have uh, access to an NHS insider. I'm going to do my I know everyone's sitting at home thinking, when's Alison going to do the hospital bed occupancy statistics? A Pearson, discharge correspondent. Discharge correspondent. (laughs) Now you mention it. It's the most glamorous byline ever, darling. I know, I know. I think I, I think I have like a bedpan, like some kind of plastic, don't you think, some kind of plastic apron. But this actually is, I think it's worth us getting down into the nitty gritty because we've got all this nonsense with the Prime Minister isolating and hospitals could be overwhelmed. No, absolutely not. So George, our insider, said that overall the trend looks slightly worse than last week. Nationally, 13% of hospital beds are occupied by COVID patients, but the increases are very marginal and at nowhere near the rapid increase that was seen in April. The number of patients 
diagnosed in the last week is definitely falling in the northwest, which, as we know, Liam, was our worst affected yep. region. London doesn't look like it will have much of a problem at all, says George, unlikely to reach even half the COVID occupancy they experienced in April. Other regions are seeing a COVID occupancy creeping up, but always at much slower rates. Now, just want to take a couple of minutes to do this, Liam, because it seems to me to be the absolute root of it. All right. So people like Professor Carl Hennigan, they're all struggling to get the information the they need. Evidence-based medicine. That's right. And he has been saying he's been struggling to get bed occupancy figures, discharge figures. Madness. So what George is saying to us What I asked George on behalf of Planet Normal listeners is how many people are admitted to hospital with COVID and how many are getting COVID in hospital. And this is what George said. Of all the patients testing positive in hospital in the last week, that's 11,000 people, only a quarter had COVID confirmed pre-admission. Everyone else, that's three quarters of the patients, was diagnosed with COVID after admission 50% were diagnosed within naught to two days. And that probably means, Liam, that the patients coming in for other procedures, have bones set, heart procedures, whatever, were then tested and were found to be positive. So they probably had pre-existing COVID infection, although we know the tests are a bit out. But if those people who didn't have COVID symptoms when they arrived in hospital should sadly die, they will be put down as COVID deaths, even if they died of heart disease or a stroke. And this is the really powerful statistic. George says 15% of COVID patients, that's 1,800 people, were diagnosed with COVID more than eight days after admission. And this almost certainly means they were infected with COVID in the hospital. So that gives a very different complexion, doesn't it, to the statistics we see on the news every night. And guess what, Liam, just as we're recording, I've had another text from George inside the NHS. Incredible data here. There are around a thousand discharges every weekday of COVID patients, and that's about as many people get discharged as there are new diagnoses. So we are only increasing bed occupancy by a very small number each day. How about that? To be clear again, these are statistics from within the NHS. You have a source within the NHS. Mm. These aren't statistics that are available to journalists, but we know that your source is credible. You've known your source for a long time. Their identity will, of course, remain undisclosed. I think there is now a welter of evidence that's surrounding Boris in his bunker with his pet scientists. Graham Brady, who runs the 1922 Committee Mm. of Tory MPs, he says that quarantine is doing untold damage and is based on, quotes, flawed and woefully wrong Science. There's been a lot of attention this week on the lateral flow tests, judged by Public Health England to be almost 100% effective, that show far fewer cases in certain parts of the country than the standard PCR tests, which we know are generating lots of false positives. You've got the World Health Organization. It's put up on its website a quite astonishing article by Professor John Yanides, who we've mentioned on this podcast before, who is probably the best epidemiologist in the world. Um, He's at Stanford University. And that article, peer-reviewed 
by Yanides on the World Health Organization website, so they're endorsing it, says the inferred infection fertility rates tend to be much lower than estimates made earlier in this pandemic. This is across the world with appropriate, precise, non-pharmacological measures that selectively try to protect high-risk, vulnerable populations and settings. The infection fertility rate may be brought even lower. John Yanides is one of the central lockdown sceptics in the world. He's very much part of that great Barrington Declaration group, mm. Shinetra mm. Gupta, who has obviously been on Planet Normal, and other from Oxford, other scientists from Harvard and Stanford wrote that great Barrington Declaration. It is not true to say that scientists who don't back lockdown are outliers. It just is not it's wrong. And it's our duty, Alison, to report that it's wrong to cast eminent epidemiologists who are concerned about lockdown, concerned, as Unidi says, that it does more harm than good, the cure being worse than the disease. They are not outliers at all. They are a growing and increasingly vocal group as the damage of lockdown in terms of non-COVID health treatments, in terms of mental health, in terms of missed education opportunities in terms of the economy, not to mention, uh, become more and more <laughs> yeah. clear. Have we still got one of those? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, all, we'll all have a whip round on Christmas Day to try and bail us out. I have to say, Liam, that you know we, we have these imposing statistics at a sort of national level, but see what the impact is on normal families. So we had one Planet Normal listener, fantastic, who said if a family of four is living together and all are suspected of catching the virus at different times, that family would all have to self-isolate for a total of 56 days. I mean, this is actually happening now that schools are sending kids home because one pupil in the year group has got a positive test, even if they don't have any symptoms. And that's why I think Boris is... Boris says he's setting an example. Yeah, he's setting the wrong kind of example, which is if you don't have any symptoms and you can't pass it on, then just go out and get on with the job, frankly. Coming back to some of this green stuff, Liam, which I am actually, you know, I I know we were having a bit of a laugh, but some of the 10 points that the Prime Minister is putting forward, they are good things. I mean, um, expanding nuclear power with smaller reactors and hydrogen. I mean, I, I was just thinking earlier, you know, that lovely song, The Gas Man Came to Call. I think it's going to be The Hydrogen, <laughs> the hydrogen Man Came to Call, if we can, if we can imagine something. You've got two bob for the hydrogen meter, Doris. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Looking at the other things, you know, to my untutored eye, this offshore wind, enough energy to power every home by 2030, and then electric vehicles by 2030. I do notice, Liam, that before the government was saying that they were going to ban petrol and diesel cars by 2030, but it's been subtly altered to accelerate the transition to. But again, if we go back to our Brexit voters, our Leave voters in all these sort of northern and midlands constituencies. I mean, can, you know, can you imagine breaking the news to them that um, Princess Nut Nut wants them to have an electric scooter, not their family station wagon? And I'm just aghast at some of these things. I mean, as I said, some sensible things, but something in the realms of a sort of diesel car level disaster. We've still got a diesel car, which we were told to buy by the government of the time because that was going to be environmentally friendly. Do you yeah, remember that? Yeah, thanks for that, Gordon Brown. <laughs> it begins as a love story. Couples who meet as young activists 
bonded in a fight against injustice. We seem to have similar outlooks in life. He often made me feel very special. It felt like we were in love. I remember it being quite magical. As far as I was concerned, we had a future together. I fully did envisage my future with him. But then he starts acting strangely. Suddenly there were secrets and there were inconsistencies and there were things that didn't make sense. Then one day he leaves. I came home from work and I realised immediately that he'd gone. Vanishes without a trace. And the reason why these men disappear is so disturbing, it's led to a formal apology from the state. I never for a moment thought that it would be what it actually turned out to be. This is Bed of Lies, the true story of one of the biggest scandals in recent British history and the latest podcast from The Telegraph. Talk about the Stasi in East Germany. That's not how we understand our society. A tale that travels from the safety of a loving bedroom to the very heart of the law. Search for Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. Now, back in 2010, a new Tory MP arrived in Parliament and it seemed he'd been there forever. Yet unlike so many others at Westminster, Steve Baker had a life before politics, not least as a Royal Air Force engineer. An expert in aerospace engineering and computation, this church-going, skydiving, motorcycle and fast car enthusiast truly is unique among MPs. But what really defines him is his formidable ability to organise and rally Tory backbenchers, not least when he was chairman of the pro-Brexit European Research Group during the tumultuous Theresa May years. Now, Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, has unequivocally called for lockdown to end. Does Steve Baker agree? Well, I'm very much minded to agree with him. But what I've found is that every time I feel I've grasped hold of a reason to cancel the government's policy, because I work very carefully with with other scientists and particularly my constituent, Dr. Ragib Ali, he's always been very patient in walking me through the science. And typically what I find is if anybody thinks they've got an easy answer to this, they've typically taken quite a partial view of the data. Now, Ragib is anti-lockdown, but he's also absolutely meticulous about the science. So I'm not ready today to call for it to be cancelled. I did vote against against it. So I'd be very, very happy if it was cancelled. But we do need to come up with an alternative way of living with a disease which is actually quite dangerous for those vulnerable to it. You're famously well connected on the back benches, Steve. You wield the mighty WhatsApp groups of Tory MPs. So your intelligence is often better than the whips of it itself. What is the mood across our lockdown parliament at the moment, particularly among your own backbenchers. How big could the rebellion be if the government doesn't end lockdown in early December as promised? I think the rebellion could be enormous if the government doesn't end lockdown in December. And indeed, earlier I had a member of the government, PPS, say to me that they'd made clear to the whips that they wouldn't be voting for a third lockdown. And I think the politics of this are very clear Our constituents are expressing to us all of the time the non-coronavirus costs of lockdown, whether it's uh, livelihoods, non-coronavirus health, not being able to see friends and family, including in care homes, you know, on and on it goes. The business impacts are terrible, basically the suspension of normal life, the infringement of our liberties. I mean, people are genuinely worried about 
what is going on. So combine that with one colleague saying to me today that they're trying to get to the bottom of how it can be that three quarters of the coronavirus patients in her local hospital seem to have caught coronavirus after they got into hospital or certainly they didn't have coronavirus when they were admitted let's put it that way it might have developed they might have come in with it but nobody knew but one way or another of the coronavirus patients in her hospital only a quarter were admitted known to have coronavirus and so with all of these things going on you know I'm very much minded to agree with Graham. Some of the scientific perspectives out there, including from some of the quite eminent scientists, it's a bit like trying to grab peaches in a bowl, you know, as a kid, you grab hold of them and they squirt out of your hand. Some of the things we're being told, particularly about false positives, it's very, very attractive sometimes to believe that this isn't a real thing. But then you talk to doctors actually on the front line dealing with coronavirus patients and you find that actually it is a very real disease for those vulnerable to it so you know yeah i'd love to end lockdown early but we've got to give the prime minister options what would it mean politically steve if boris johnson did end up relying on labor votes to enforce this third lockdown that would surely be the end of his honeymoon with his own backbenchers that would completely change the political dynamic within parliament right If Boris Johnson has to rely on Labour, it would be an extremely ugly situation. I think I should make it clear that there's no animosity towards Boris on the backbenches. I don't see that at all. In in so far as there is any, it would be unrelated to recent events, be old old grievances. But the party wants him to succeed. There's an enormous warmth towards him. And I would say that what my colleagues really want is to emerge in 2021 with a safe and effective vaccine being rolled out, restrictions reducing, a good quality free trade agreement, security agreement with the European Union consistent with being an independent country, and to start fighting our way back as a good quality conservative party, looking after people and this levelling up agenda. If that means looking after people who haven't got very much and making sure they've got a lot more, well, then that's what we're about, lifting people out of poverty into a better future. So at the top end, MPs are looking forward to real success for Boris Johnson. But you're right, the big risk for him is Labour votes being used to inflict on the public anti-conservative ideals, which Tory MPs are absolutely hating putting their name to. We've just had some evidence that so-called lateral flow tests which have been judged by Public Health England to be almost 100% effective, they're showing 80% fewer cases in Liverpool than standard PCR tests, PCR tests that we know generate a lot of false positives. Do you think that's a big moment? Do you think that suggests that the government's entire strategy could be based on flawed data, test results which massively overstate the incidence of this virus? I have had a meeting with a scientist about this issue of false positives and PCR tests. Three scientists were on the call with me and another member of parliament who's not a scientist. And we've really robustly started to scrutinise this allegation that it's false positives leading to this. There does seem to be a major mismatch between results in Liverpool for PCR and the results on the lateral flow tests. And that is going to need very careful teasing apart to find out exactly what is going on. It's conceivable that in order to get volume and speed out of labs, that quality has gone down. That's one of the arguments I've heard that's quite persuasive. But what I think can't be gainsaid on this is the actual patients in hospital because when I talk to doctors who are treating coronavirus patients they tell me that a coronavirus patient has a very distinct presentation and can be diagnosed as suffering from coronavirus without a PCR test so 
there's a lot of complexity going on in our hospitals. You know, occupancy levels are not where people thought they would be. I think if you draw a line on the government's scary chart showing that the NHS was going to be overwhelmed, you find that in areas where the government alleged that the NHS would be overwhelmed, actually there's still spare capacity at a time when they said we would have run out of Nightingale capacity. So that that is going to need to be explained by the government over the next couple of days. But on the point of false positives, I'm afraid with real people in real hospital beds and real doctors saying that coronavirus presentation is distinctive, I'm afraid I, I, I can't agree that this is about false positives. There may be some false positives and it may be a real problem in a low prevalence environment. But as I say to your listeners as well, I am engaging with the argument and I have arranged genuine scientific experts to scrutinise the data which uh, is purported to support that case. You have surrounded yourself, Steve, haven't you, with scientists from all necks of the woods, if you like, when it comes to coronavirus do you think Boris Johnson should have done the same? Do you think he should have surrounded himself with a broader range of scientific opinion? Because, of course, the science when it comes to COVID is emerging because we're learning as we go, as well as other advisors, economists, psychologists, behavioural scientists in order to advise him. Because he has to strike a balance, doesn't he, rather than just blindly following one version of the science. Absolutely agreed. This is to misunderstand how science works and particularly to misunderstand how it works when the data is incomplete and uncertain and susceptible to multiple interpretations, particularly about how things will evolve in the future, depending on human conduct. The upshot of all of this combined with scientists only being human, scientists face incentives like everyone else. So if they say lockdown, doesn't matter how many deaths there are, they can always say, well, it would have been worse without my policy of lockdown. Scientists are highly incentivized to recommend lockdowns, but to neglect all of the other consequences on livelihoods and non-COVID health and so on. Equally, right in the middle of all that, there is a problem that if you let COVID levels get too high, that squeezes non-COVID out of hospital. So there's a very complex optimization problem here. And I think that optimization problem would be better solved by having competing multidisciplinary expert teams complete with devil's advocates to challenge them. So if we had an anti-lockdown group of scientists, the SAGE we've got and the pro-lockdown people, and they were all forced to engage with the broad spectrum along the lines you've set out, economists, psychologists, consideration of social care, get some GPs in there, as well as the epidemiology and pathology of the disease, force them to engage with all of that use more data and less modelling, and indeed correct some really major flaws in data modelling. That, that's another subject. If you were to do those things, that would give the Prime Minister options on how he proceeded, because at the moment he's boxed in by this false idea that there's a single version of the truth in science. And, and I'm afraid this is a major mistake. A great friend of mine, Professor Roger Koppel, has uh, written a book called Expert Failure on the subject. I summarised it on a page and sent it into the Prime Minister. I've subsequently had meetings with Number 10 about it. I very much hope that they will reform the structure of expert advice along the lines I've just suggested. And that in future will prevent this nightmare of having a single view, having a Prime Minister bounced into a decision on data which subsequently falls apart. I mean, it is an appalling situation to be in. Now, Dominic Cummings has been closely associated with the lateral flow tests, which many people feel could help us break through with this pandemic. But he's also been closely associated with the broader policy of lockdown. You called for him to resign back in May, Steve, even though you're both very much Brexiteers. 
Do you think it's a good thing that he's now left the heart of government? Well, Dominic is a very talented man. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt. And I don't want to say very much about him. But I've always had one objection to him, and that is he just picks so many fights and does a lot of collateral damage. So at the time I called for him to go, it was because of the Barnard Castle debacle. But he has now gone. And for me, the issue now is just moving on constructively, getting the right people around the prime minister. He needs to pick the right chief of staff, and then we all move on. I, I don't have any doubt that Dominic will have made some very positive contributions to the government of the United Kingdom while he was in post. I I certainly wouldn't want to brief against those. As somebody who campaigned for Brexit, Steve, and somebody who was very, very insistent as parts of our political and media establishment tried to unravel the Brexit votes and stage a second referendum, are you concerned that Dominic has now left Downing Street in terms of the Brexit deal? Could the European Union use his departure as a way to gain leverage over the British government. Is there a danger that Boris could lose his nerve and accept a really bad deal in order to avoid now no deal? I never believed that Dominic Cummings was the guarantor of a decent Brexit, partly because I'm afraid I wish it wasn't the case. But back when I was doing the strategy for what the ERG should do, there was a time when Dominic wrote in The Spectator, the ERG are remains useful idiots and stridently condemned us for not voting for May's deal. Now, I admit the stand we took in 2019 did involve an element of gamble. We couldn't be absolutely sure of the way it would work out. But I was always confident that we should not vote for Brexit in name only on the basis we could repudiate it later. But that was the path that he urged upon us. People now only have to look at the difficulty we have with the very modest UK internal market bill to know that you can't simply sign up to a treaty and break it later. So I thought I was right at the time. I think with events subsequently turning out the way that they have, the decision we took was proven to be right. But it was squarely at odds with the advice that Dominic gave us back then. So again, I don't wish to be mean-spirited to him. You know, he ran the Vote Leave campaign, and though I have criticisms of that campaign, it won, and I'm grateful for that. I am very glad that I never took his advice about how to get us out of the European Union. And in consequence, I have never regarded him as a guarantor of getting a good Brexit. I think the Prime Minister knows for himself what is required, and that is to have a relationship with the European Union consistent with being an independent country. That means not having any obligation to automatically adopt EU law, not having a dispute resolution mechanism that uses the ECJ as the final arbiter, having control of our fisheries, not having the jurisdiction of the Commission over state aid and so on. And uh, and I'm afraid much as I respect Dominic and the contribution he made, I have never felt that his presence in Downing Street uh, materially improved our prospects of getting those things sorted. Isn't there a danger, though, Steve, that the Tories now revert back to the kind of age of David Cameron, windmills on their houses, going after the trendy youth vote, rather than realising we're in the middle of an economic emergency, the levelling up agenda is now more imperative than ever, given this pandemic and the uneven impact of the pandemic, particularly in industrial areas where people can't do their jobs from their spare room via Zoom because their jobs involve hands-on work. Isn't there a danger that with Dominic gone, the Conservative Party loses this focus it's developed in recent years on blue-collar workers, on retaining those red wall seats, which after all were the key to the Prime Minister's AC seat majority. 
There is always a danger that a political party loses focus, turns inwards and looks at the wrong policy areas in the wrong way. There's always that danger. I don't think this is related to Dominic being present or not. The reality is with the blue wall conservative MPs that we have now, provided they're properly engaged in the policy process, they will stand up for their voters. That's the way it works. We don't rely upon having a single unelected special advisor in Downing Street to make sure that the public are well represented in Parliament and to government. That is what members of Parliament are for. So I think what you'll see now, as has been announced, is a really concerted effort to set relations right between the Conservative backbenches and ministers and number 10. Uh, The Prime Minister's announced some structures around number 10 policy committees. That's in line with a recommendation that I made privately. I made the suggestion that something like that should be done. Another colleague's made a similar recommendation and the result is that it is happening. Now, I think the outcome of that will be that there will no longer be any need for a single person to be seen to embody that connection with real voters. I mean, I'm from a working class background, you and I have very often taken very similar lines on the need to stand alongside people on ordinary incomes with real jobs, um, you know, real physical jobs in the the real world. And um, that's where I want our party to be. And finally, Steve, you are a backbencher. You spent a year or so as Brexit minister at the height of the struggle over the future direction of our policy towards withdrawal from the European Union. You're widely seen as a very smart, analytical guy. There's a lot of integrity about how you conduct yourself in your personal and political life, if I may say so. And yet you seem to me, with all respect, and we've known each other a long time, to be one of those people who is just too clever to be a minister. I mean, (laughs) why, why aren't you in government and do you want to be in government? Because there's a lot of people out there who think you should be in government. Well, Liam, I'm hugely honoured that you would put that to me. And I'm confident if you felt I deserved strident criticism, you would also deliver that too. And I'm sure that there will be people listening to this who take another view. I don't know. I don't certainly don't think I'm too clever to be a minister. Uh, I certainly enjoyed being a minister. Being a Dexu minister gave me the opportunity to work right across government, including chairing government committees with secretaries of state before the committee, which I did on behalf of David Davis, I think. I know, something like 23 out of 26 meetings over the course of a year. That was a big deal to chair those meetings with Secretaries of State as a parliamentary undersecretary. So I can certainly do the things that need doing, you know, put the EU Withdrawal Act through. So I'd love to return to government in in a serious job. I'm afraid when I was offered the opportunity to return, it was to go into a department which had had its last function stripped out of it and handed to the Cabinet Office, which is why I couldn't in good conscience take it. I do not like that I've ended up returning to organising a major backbench grouping. I seem to be quite good at that. Life works in funny ways. And if the Prime Minister wants me to do something serious in government, of course, I'll say yes. Boris faces a huge rebellion, says Steve Baker. And we know, Alison, don't we, that he'll only say that if it's true, given how in touch he is with those Tory backbenchers. Well, I must say, Liam, I really enjoyed listening to him. I mean, how refreshing, isn't it, to have a Tory politician who is serious about scrutinising the science, all the things we feel like we're banging away, don't we, in a vacuum every week on Planet Normal. And finally, now I've got this excellent group of Tory MPs, the COVID recovery group led by Steve and Graham Brady and Charles Walker, all these excellent people. And I'm thrilled to, to, to have them doing that. And I'm also glad that they're threatening properly to rebel. I suppose the great risk is that lockdown will end on December the 2nd and Boris will be seen to have kept his promise. But then we'll just segue into stricter tears. I've heard threats of even tier four. I mean, God knows what that means. Stop breathing, you know, and... uh, 
You have to go around wearing one of those massive metal diving suits. <laughs> I, I wear one so, of them. So you can go you can go into John Lewis but only <laughs> clonk your way in. Clonking your way in. Well, we'll be all right because we can wear we can wear our planet normal space suits. So yeah, oh, yeah. I mean we got we, we've got the space we, helmets. We've got That's the right, space yeah. helmets. We'll we'll be absolutely fine. And you've got uh, the wet look boots. I have got the I've got my white wet look boots. Yeah, so Stephen and Co are obviously properly engaging and encouraging the government to engage with these multiple scientific viewpoints. I mean, I read this morning, Liam, that Sage, if you can believe this, are modelling how many people were allowed to have for Christmas lunch. I mean, <laughs> would you let those people peel your sprouts? I mean, I just, it, 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 you just think, you know, how wrong do they have to get before they're just banished as advisors? Our finest minds funded by <laughs> taxpayers. They're making assumptions about how many how many feet Granny's toes will be from <laughs> yes. the electric bar fire, depending on postcode. What utter nonsense. What utter nonsense. One thing I did think, one of one thing, A, I'd forgotten until Steve reminded us that Dominic Cummings had chided the ERG for not voting for Theresa May's ghastly withdrawal agreement. So it was very interesting to be reminded about that and how strongly they, you know, they they really stuck stuck to their guns, even though they were taking a huge risk. One thing I would pick Steve up on is he says this enormous warmth towards Boris on the Tory backbenches. Well, there may be enormous warmth there, but what we're picking up, Liam, in our Planet Normal correspondence is is increasingly chilly, people talking about flirting with other parties, yeah. I'll never vote Tory again. So I would be very interested to see what the Tory backbenches will think as it becomes increasingly apparent how angry a lot of hardcore Tory voters are. I think Baker's playing a clever political game in the sense that, you know, his kind of compadre, if you like, Graham Brady, who's the formal leader of the 1922 committee, is saying he's definitely opposing an extension of lockdown. And he's like in full-throated criticism of the Prime Minister. Baker, who is his kind of unofficial right-hand man, uh, but really does have better intelligence than the Whip's office, is still hedging. But he was hedging last time. Do you remember he went into Downing Street before this latest lockdown was called and came out and said, to some people's surprise, you know, I think we've got to give the Prime Minister the benefit of the doubt. But then over the subsequent 48, 72 hours, as journalists like you and I went to town and other independent scientists and the 4,000 deaths a day doom graph Mm. fell to pieces and government's chief scientific advisers were forced into an apology, weren't they? Mm. Baker then said, we've clearly been misled. And you heard that in his discussion with me just then as well. It's a really difficult political brew that Boris faces now. The reset is partly built on getting us beyond lockdown and a vaccine down the road, but it's also partly built on getting a Brexit deal, isn't it? And we could have done the whole episode on deal or no deal on Brexit. Mm. I think mm. it's interesting that you've got the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, in Dublin saying that there's a now, quotes, a landing zone for a post-Brexit trade deal. And you've heard some quite hopeful words from the government's negotiators. But think about how Brexit kind of superimposes itself on the broader question of devolution. If the UK doesn't get a Brexit deal, and Brussels knows this, then Scotland, which voted for Remain, could get really angry. And Nicola Sturgeon, of course, has elections to Holyrood in Mm, May, in which she's likely Mm. to do very well. And she's doing even better if there's no Brexit deal, you get the feeling. On the other hand, if there is a Brexit deal, but that deal is on the back of selling out our fishing industry, 
you have all those fishing constituencies up the east coast of Scotland and elsewhere, mm. which will never vote Tory again. So it's very, very tough, this square that Johnson has to circle. I personally agree with Steve. I don't think Dominic Cummings has had much say in the negotiation of Brexit for quite a few months now. I do think Boris Johnson is determined to stick to his guns unless the EU moves on those red lines, particularly, as Steve says, uh, superimposing on our sovereignty, the European Court of Justice, which is a quasi-political court. Everyone agrees on that. But we'll have to see. But there's going to be some real fingertip control politics over the coming few weeks as the Prime Minister tries to juggle vaccines down the road with lockdown and no lockdown, Brexit, deal or no deal. It's certainly going to keep him busy. I think that on the top of all this chaos that we've had, I genuinely think Boris is finished if we don't have a proper Brexit. I just think that that will be the end for people like me. And I'm sure for millions like me, he's just got to do it. We want control of our borders, control of our laws, control of immigration, control of our fish, obviously, if we can control our fish. And I think that it will be absolutely devastating if there's any sign of a sellout now. So I I hope that is focusing his mind as he sits there uh, burping Wilfred in the flat above number 10. So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I, not only do we love hearing from you, we are learning so much. You, our listeners, are part of a fast-growing Planet Normal community. And we really hope when we rejoin normal life, when's that going to be, Liam? 2032? What do you reckon? One of the- <laughs> yeah, let's pencil it in for 2027. <laughs> let's, let's be optimistic. <laughs> Tier seven. <laughs> this is just something came in from a, a listener in Scotland, Gordon, just coming back to Boris causing all this uproar about saying devolution is has been rubbish, awful. Gordon says, if the SNP had been successful with even one policy, we would be independent by now. Gordon obviously lives in Scotland. Police, NHS, capital expenditure, infighting, they've been absolutely useless. But to criticise them is to criticise Scotland. If we can solve that conundrum, they'll collapse very, very quickly. Maybe not in May, but hopefully soon. So that's a really interesting perspective, Liam. Thanks for your podcast, says Sarah, which has brought me some comfort over the past six months. I lost my grandmother to COVID back in March, but nothing compares to my sense of frustration and helplessness with lockdown over the rest of the year. I can't see my partner, says Sarah, because he lives in the US. Our entire relationship has been on hold as we've waited and waited for the travel ban to be lifted. I'd often break down and cry, staying awake from anxiety. Separation and uncertainty were slowly eroding our love. Finally, I arranged with my employer, says Sarah, to work remotely from Dubai for two weeks, as you do. And that's where we met up. I could hold my partner in my arms for the first time in six months. Now I'm applying to a US university so I can live with my partner next year. My former UK university needs to send them my transcript. But when I asked them to do this, they refused due to COVID restrictions. I can't now submit my application and face missing the deadline. So I'm fighting my love, my sanity and my career, says Sarah. But it isn't COVID that's in the way. It's everyone using COVID as an excuse not to do their jobs or to restrict movement. Thank you again for Planet Normal. 
Yes, there's so many stories, aren't there, of people separated by these restrictions. There's a young woman in the prime of her life, mm. you know, in know, the prime know, of her I life. I know. Just, that's why I read it out because, mm. you know, clearly she's a very accomplished woman. She's She can afford to travel around. She's obviously mm. got a very, very good job. But, you know, this is her young life. Yes. And it's being completely upended. Absolutely. We've we've heard from Nikki Hurst. Nikki works for the wonderful campaign group Rights for Residents. This is Nikki, Liam, reflecting on um, Helen Waitley, our care minister, who the Rights of Residents people call the chocolate teapot because she's that useless. So <laughs> The handbrake on the canoe. <laughs> Nikki says, <laughs> Nikki says, teapot starts her pilot scheme tomorrow. She says it's for one month. So, 30 days, at a rate of 421 to 642 deaths per day in care homes, that will be 12,630 to 19,260 people who will die in their care home without having seen their families for nine months, while waiting for her to do what? Since care homes locked down on the 15th of March... We have had 244 days. 244 times 421 equals 102,724 elderly people have already died since lockdown began without their families. How is this even legal? Now, just to say, Liam, just to make the point, this pilot scheme is nonsense. It's absolute arse covering by Waitley and Matt Hancock because they know now we've got those much better tests that you talked about, the lateral flow test. They could start this tomorrow to let Robert and all those thousands of other family relatives get in. And we heard this week again from Robert just keeping in touch, not much change at this end. The manager in Still jo- can't see Josephine? No, he says the manager in Josephine's care home seems to think this 28-day rule is actually the law, which is news to me. And and Liam, we heard Matt Hancock this week on, on the Today programme, quite astonishingly, when it was put to him that elderly people were being forced to quarantine for 28 days in the care homes, he said, no, that's not right. It's 14 days. So the Secretary of State for Health is unaware of the rule which is being imposed on elderly people in this country. I mean, I thought even by Hancock standards, that was absolutely breathtaking. It is breathtaking. And i tell you something else, Alison, a Scooby snack for Nikki, <laughs> because <laughs> Nikki has just out even you. That was the most velmatastic moment we've had on this week's podcast, even better than your discharge <laughs> numbers. <laughs> so there you go. You got competition. <laughs> What's caught your eye? And here's another one. Every night on my local news, I'm given detailed COVID data by area, which purports to show infections arising everywhere, writes Roger, who's a former chair of an NHS trust, so he knows his stuff. But there's never any context, says Roger, nor mention that flu numbers in a normal year would be much the same as COVID and that each winter we face a potential shortage of beds. The data we're being fed is rubbish, yet it will no doubt be used to tighten up the tier measures as we're sold an end to lockdown, which is nothing of the kind. Strong words from Roger. Gosh, great to hear that from from him. So this is from Charlotte, Liam. So Charlotte says, 
I'm in a state of despair over this. I've been a regular contributor to one of our leading polling companies for some time. And when I completed surveys regarding COVID, they were very obviously biased. In one, I was required to choose from the following options. A, X weeks lockdown. B, Y weeks lockdown. Or C, three month lockdown. But with no option to say I totally disagree with the whole idea of lockdown. So as I had to choose one, I chose the shortest, but I fear I was taken on record of supporting lockdown when I very adamantly don't. I think this polling company is borderline fraudulent. Why isn't anyone investigating this? Are we all rolling over to let the control freak, hypocritical liberal elite get their way? Yeah, off the back of a US election result, of course, which was clearly misread by the pollsters. Mm. The Brexit vote was clearly misread by the pollsters. I personally think the pollsters have got a lot to answer for. And here's one, Alison, from a namesake of yours, another Alison. I love listening to Planet Normal, she says, but I frequently end up in tears. The frustration I feel over the refusal of this government to see the wider impact of their decisions is breaking my heart. You speak truth to power. Unfortunately, power isn't listening. And here's another one from Sue. By quarantining the Prime Minister, the government's got things upside down. Having had COVID, he should be freed, benefiting from a period of immunity. After all, we've seen just a handful of possible reinfection cases. Give people who've already had the virus COVID-free status, says Sue. This could allow quick entry to theatres and sports events when they return, without needing a test. And how about incorporating this status into the NHS app, providing a positive incentive to get tested and some positive publicity for the using the app too? I tell you what, Alison, sign that woman up. I say, <laughs> Sue, care of Planet Normal. She should be the new Downing Street chief of staff. Boris, if you're listening, I could put you in touch. That's a brilliant, really brilliant suggestion. And Julie picks up on something that's really annoyed me this week. Julie says, you know it has gone past the point of insanity when Matt Hancock, equipped with his degree in PPE, that's philosophy, sadly, not the medical protective gear. Philosophy, politics and economics. (laughs) Having never worked in the real world, I think he might have done a couple of internships, calls Professor Carl Hennigan of Oxford University an outlier. And when his boss, a former journalist, appears to be setting policy based on the latest whim of his 32-year-old girlfriend who has a degree in theatre studies. Now, Julie, be fair, theatre studies and art history. So so we're in good hands. (laughs) And that's it for our latest voyage to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry to the madness of planet Earth. Keep the faith until next Thursday, and we'll be back for another blast-off in our Rocket of Right Thinking, our capsule of common sense. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community, click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section. Between 11am and 12 noon, we'll reply to them. So come and join us. I was just wondering, Liam, quickly to slip this in, whether we should introduce, let's ask what the listeners think, a favourite Planet Normal idiocy of the week and my nomination for this week. Care homes will be banned from putting up Christmas decorations. So if anyone else has got... (laughs) Yes. Very, very dangerous, those baubles, you know. (laughs) Remember too, you can read Alison in the Telegraph every Wednesday and me on Sundays. And if you subscribe to the paper, you can peruse the whole back catalogue of our writing via the Telegraph website. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Planet Normal podcast, which is free, of course, 
And if you subscribe to the podcast, which again costs nothing, you'll never miss an episode. So as our beloved sanctuary that's planet normal fades out of sight once more, an Earth hoves into view. Thanks as ever to our brilliant producers, Reese Gunter, Louisa Wells and Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theo Leludis. Until our next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.